0: Chapter 3 The Tale of the Alchemist Who Sold His Soul The emotion aroused by this story had not died away when one of our companions indicated that he wanted to tell his own. One episode especially in the Knight's Tale seemed to have attracted his attention, or rather it was one of the random pairings of cards in the second row, the Ace of Cups placed beside the Popess. This is just how he personally felt involved in that juxtaposition. He pushed up to the right of those two cards, the figure of the king of cups, which could have passed for a very youthful, and to tell the truth, exaggeratedly flattering portrait of him. And on the left, continuing in a horizon line, a native clubs. The first interpretation that the sequence calls to mind if we continue attributing the aura of voluptuousness to the fountain was that our fellow guest had an amorous relations with a nun in a wood or that he had offered her copious drink since the fountain if you examine it closely seemed to pour from the little caskets at the top of a grape press but the melancholic stare of that man's face seemed lost in speculations but the melancholic stare of the man's face seemed lost in speculations from which not only carnal passions, but even the most venial pleasures of table and cellar had to be excluded. Lofty meditations must have been his, though his worldly appearance left no doubt that they were still addressed to earth and not to heaven. The most probable hypothesis that occurred to me was that the card stood for the fountain of life, the supreme goal of the alchemist's search. And that our companion was, in fact, one of those scholars who scrutinized embellics and crucibles, trying to wrest from nature her secrets, and especially that of the transformation of metals. You could believe that from his earliest youth, he had no other passion save the manipulation of the elements, and for years he had waited to see the yellow king of the mineral world precipitate in the depths of his cauldron. And in his quest, he had finally sought the counsel and aid of those women sometimes encountered in forests, experts in filters and magic potions devoted to the art of witchcraft and fortune-telling. The car that came next, the Emperor, could naturally refer to a prophecy of the Forest Witch. You will become the most powerful man in the world. It would hardly have been surprising if our alchemist had got the swelled head, expecting any day an extraordinary change in the course of his life. This event must have been indicated in the following card, which was the enigmatic first arcanum, sometimes known as the juggler, in which some see a charlatan or a magician performing his tricks. So then our hero, raising his eyes from the desk, had seen a magician seated before him as he handled his embellics and his retorts. Who are you? What are you doing here? Watch what I do, answered the magician, pointing to the glass flask over a fire. The dazzled look on which our companion threw down the seven coins left no doubt about what he had seen. The splendor of all the mines of the Orient lying open before him. You can give me the secret of gold? he must have asked the charlatan. The following card was the two of coins, a sign of an exchange, I thought spontaneously. A sale, a barter. I will sell it to you the unknown visitor must have replied what do you want in return the answer we all expected was your soul but we weren't sure until the narrator turned over a new card and he lingered a moment before doing so not placing it next to the previous one but after the last thus beginning a new row in the opposite direction the card was the devil in short he had recognized in the charlatan the old prince of all mingling and ambiguity just as we had now recognized our companion as Dr. Faust. So Metastopheles had then answered, your soul, an idea that can be represented only by the figure of Psyche, the young girl who illuminates the shadows with her light as she is contemplated in the star. The Five of Cups, which was then shown to us, could be read as the alchemist's secret the devil revealed to Faust, or as a toast to seal their bargain, or as the bells which with their strokes put the internal visitor to flight. But we could also interpret the card as a discourse upon the soul, upon the body as the soul's vessel. My soul, our Faust may have answered, and what if I have no soul? But perhaps it was not for an individual soul that Mephistopheles had inconvenienced himself. With the gold, you will buy a city, he was saying to Faust. It is the entire city's soul that I want in exchange. It's a deal. And the devil could truly vanish with a sneer that seemed to howl. Long-time inhabitant of steeples, accustomed to contemplating from his perch on a raining spout, the of roofs, he knew that the souls of cities are the most substantial and more lasting than those of all their inhabitants put together. Now there was still the Wheel of Fortune to interpret, one of the most complicated images in the whole tarot game. It could simply mean that fortune had turned itself in Voss's direction, but this explanation seemed too obvious for the alchemist's narrative style, always elliptical and elusive. On the other hand, it was legitimate to suppose that our doctor, having got possession of the diabolical secret, conceived a monstrous plan to change into gold all that was changeable. The wheel of the 10th Arcanum could then literally mean the toiling gears of the great gold mill, the gigantic mechanism which would raise up the metropolis of precious metal, and, from human forms of various ages seen pushing the wheel or rotating it, were there to indicate the crowds of men who eagerly lent a hand to the project, and dedicated years of their lives turning those wheels day and night. This interpretation failed to take into account all the details of the miniature, for example the animalesque ears and tails that adorned some of the revolving human figures. But it was a basis for interpreting the following cards of cups and coins as the kingdom of abundance in which the city of gold's inhabitants wallowed. But when would the established price be collected by the cloven contracting party? The story's two final cards were already on the table, placed there by the first narrator, the Two of Swords and Temperance. At the gates of the City of Gold, armed guards blocked the way to anyone who wished to enter to prevent access to the cloven hoofed collector, no matter in what guise he might turn up. And even if a simple maiden, like the one of the last card, were to approach, the guards made her halt. You lock your gates in vain. This was the answer that could be expected from the water-bearer. I care not to enter a city where all is of solid metal. We who live in what is fluid visit only elements that flow and mingle. Was she a water-nymph? Was she the queen of the elves of the air, an angel of liquid fire in the earth's center? In the Wheel of Fortune, if you looked carefully, The bestial metamorphosis seemed only perhaps in the first steps of a regression of the human to the vegetable and mineral. Are you afraid our souls will fall into the devil's hands? Those of the city must have asked. No, for you have no soul to give him.